0: Chapter Seventeen Hush Kehis Napa In Search of Dead Yaja Nazba Dasha Asha E like Nihija Deadi Radanesh Rath Radashin Nihena Epithna Host Alchine Nahalchin Bith Nahi Diltseth Niyaja Bith Nahi Diltseth As soon as I get a chance, I will go look for our little one, Dedi. They say the enemy has another place. We will see our children again. You will see your little one again. Nananabat took her husband's strong hand and held it close to her breast. Lifting his hand to her face, she kissed his hand as if she were kissing her little one's face. Tears ran freely down her face, bringing with it, a restless night. Her beautiful husband was her warrior. He is not fighting the enemy at this time, but he is fighting my loneliness for my children. She thought as she opened her eyes to see her husband building a fire near their camp to keep them warm. Ninanabat knew her husband wanted so much to run toward the eastern direction. He looked longingly at the rising sun. Ninanabat knew in her heart they had lost more than her children. They were losing a large part of the lifestyle that they were so accustomed to. More Nabeho people were chased to Fort Funk, Roy. To obtain information, Heshkeh went to where the men had gathered. He talked to the Nalbihu men who had just arrived. He asked if anyone had heard of his daughters or his son. The names were not familiar to them, but they told him of another place where people were being held prisoner before being forced onward to Fort Sumner. It was over a day's ride toward the northwest, he was told. It was a place known as Tsehotso, Fort Defiance. They reported there were many soldiers who lived at the place known as Tsehotso. Hachkehifmapa was given directions, and that night he stole out of the camp. The soldiers were distracted by the many Nabeho people who were brought to the fort and who were sick and dying. Hashkeh ran in the direction the men told him to run to find the other fort. To reserve his energy, he slowed down to a walk. As he walked, he kept an eye on the stars so as not to lose his way. In the pale moonlight, he noticed many horse tracks as he made his way through unfamiliar territory, so he decided it was best to travel at night. The tracks were not those of the Indian horses, they had to be those of the soldiers' horses. Further, he knew he was in the territory of the night animals, so he walked reverently talking to the trees, the bushes, and the small rodents that made little scurrying noises. As the white light of dawn appeared, Hashkeh stopped to pray. Tired from walking most of the night, he began to look for a stout tree with wide branches to settle in for a few hours' rest. The insides of his moccasins with their thick sole were beginning to dampen from the moistness of his feet as he walked, and the early morning dew had dampened his moccasins from the outside. Stepping out of my moccasins to allow them to dry would preserve them, he thought. Before climbing into a stout tree, he looked for some soft dry sand and placed handfuls of the sand in his moccasins then rubbed sand on his feet and between his toes. In the tree, he found a wide branch that would support his weight, then climbed up into it. He placed his moccasins in a nearby branch, then using his arm as a pillow, he fell asleep. The bright sunshine interrupted his sleep. Inspecting his moccasins was a young hawk, possibly wondering what kind of a bird... The nest belonged to. Ashkechishnapa was surprised at the height of the branch he had climbed up into. Slowly he poured the sand out of his moccasins, put them on, and began a slow descent out of the tree. Once again he voiced a prayer, thanking the environment for his safety and asked for the safety of his wife and his children. He spent the remainder of the day looking for roots and berries with which to sustain himself. Two more nights were spent much like the first. On the fourth day, Ashkeh came across a group of Nabeho. They looked very tired, hungry, and much beyond their years. They told of how they were looking for the fort, where they might find food. Even though the soldiers had destroyed their homes, captured their children, killed the young men, and killed their livestock, they were told the fort was the only place they could go to find a sense of relief from all the senseless destruction. Each person, regardless of age, had a horror story to tell. The people wiped dry tears from their eyes, and looked toward Hashkeh with hope. He told them of his reason to be looking for the soldiers' fort. In their efforts to discourage Hashkeh from going to the fort, the people told him the soldiers were shooting Nabehw men on sight and taking the women and children captive. Disregarding their warning, Hashkeh followed the western ridge that the Nabeho said created a barrier from the wind. As he reached the edge of the steep sloping ridge, his breath was caught up in the breeze that unexpectedly hit him from behind. Looking below him, Ashkeh saw a rather large settlement with many square houses. The settlement was just like the one his oldest son, had described. The Hopis and a few Pueblo Anan enemies lived in square houses, but they were made out of mud and square rocks. The Nakai lived in square homes that were made of logs, a lot like the ones he was seeing below him. The houses below were long, some of them big, some small, and others were rectangular. He saw hundreds of sheep kept in a corral to the east, and many horses penned up. He also watched soldiers walking back and forth as they shouted orders to one another. As he continued to watch, he observed nearly a hundred soldiers on horseback leave the fort and travel northward, possibly to destroy more Na'behu homes and bring in captives. There was no sign of a group of Na'behu like what his son had described. Are my children already being chased to this new land? He thought to himself after having observed the enemy for nearly half a day. Tears of disappointment slid down Hashkeh face. His heart ached for his daughters and his oldest son. He could hear his beautiful daughters' voices in his ears, but he could not see them. He could hear his oldest son's voice, but he could not see him. He could hear his beautiful Ninanabath's sigh in his ears. He knew his youngest son wanted to come with him in the worst way, but Hashkeh told his son to stay and watch over his mother. Build a fire for your mother at night, so your mother will not get cold, Hashkeh had told his son. Hushkeh retreated to a safe hiding place. His heart became very sad and very heavy. There was no sign of a large group of Nabehu at this place. There was no sign of his children. His breath became heavy and uneven. Hushkeh sank to the base of an old tree trunk that was surrounded by many sumac bushes. He buried his head in his folded arms and began to cry in uncontrollable sobs. He had pushed his hopes of seeing his little one, his oldest daughter, down deep in his heart for fear of not finding her, and now that spot deep down in his heart ached. Before his closed, moist eyes, moved the graceful form of his nananabha. His feeling of despair deepened. What was he going to tell her? He waited, sitting in the same position until he felt the slight fall breeze become cooler. He rubbed his eyes, his head, then rubbed his chest and got up and looked for a tree he could climb up into to sleep until it became dark. In the shadows of darkness, Hashkeh began running quietly in the direction he had come. As he came running back off of the ridge to the southwest, Hashkeh stumbled across the group of Nabehu sitting in the same spot they had been sitting when he left. They asked him if they could join him, seeing that he could be a source of protection and food. A young boy had a bow and several arrows and a quiver he carried on his back, which he offered to Hashkeh Assuming leadership, Hashkeh knew the people could not travel as fast as he did on the way over, so he told the group they would have to journey three more nights before they could get rest. They agreed. Two little girls were picked up on the way by Hashkehishnapa and the people. The girls were found under a bush, sleeping. They were badly scraped, but surprisingly healthy. The women used extremely sharp rocks to cut the little girls' badly matted hair. To brush out their hair would be painful, since the two little ones had cuts on their head from falling out of a tree, they told the group. Hashkehillnapa asked the men to carry the little girls as they traveled. The group kept moving quietly under the cover of darkness. In the cool evening breeze, Hashkehillnapa went hunting for small game. He came back with eight long prairie dogs, The men helped him start a small fire by twisting sinew around two sticks. When the twisted sinew was pulled, it caused the sticks to spin at an amazing speed. After several attempts, the thin pieces of bark that they held near the sparks caught fire. The men went looking for dry cedar branches, knowing that cedar burns quickly And produces hot coals quickly, and more importantly, burns without producing much smoke. With the cedar nearly burnt, the men seared the skin off of the Tlon prairie dogs, then used flat rocks to scrape away the fine ash. They used a large flat rock to carefully move the burning logs of cedar, as well as the live coals and ashes which they put to the side. Hashkeh Yilna dug a hole nearly four inches deep in the hot ground and placed the long prairie dogs in the ground after they were wrapped in bark. The men then covered the prairie dogs and carefully placed the hot coals, burning logs, and ashes back in their original position. When darkness covered the ground, the group dug out the long prairie dogs, uncovered them, skinned them, and began eating. The two little girls were given one long and they devoured their meal while tears rolled freely down their face. The rest of the group also cried silent tears as they remembered their own torturous journeys. Having eaten their first meal in days the people sat back and watched the cedar woods sparking as each person recalled their horrific experience. Once again, the group had become closely knit through their experiences and by the end of the evening had adopted Hashke Isnapa as their leader after having established plan relationships. The two little girls who were homeless and had been made orphans were also accepted into a family. The women and children slept while the men took turns keeping watch. As the pale moonlight began to fade, the group rose and began following Hashkeh as he walked in a southeastward direction. To keep from being tracked, he chose the same rocky terrain he had followed when he came. Fear gripped the hearts of the people when they discovered the hoofprints of many horses. Hashkeh moved the people quickly through a narrow mesa and camped on top of the mesa as the light of the rising sun began to create a white glow in the east. Ripe juniper berries and cactus juice was all that was divided up among the group. Still no one complained because they were glad to be in the company of one another. Within two days, Hushkeh Yilnapa was glad to know they were near Fort Fauntleroy. He was surprised that the group had moved rather quickly. The group rested throughout the day and slept when the evening shadows began to lengthen. Ashkeh decided a good meal was what the group needed. He directed the young men to look for wood as he and two older men went looking for small game. Three rabbits and four prairie dogs were all the men could find and kill. They roasted the animals in the ground in the same fashion as before. As Ketjutlapa looked upon the group, he saw them to be exhausted, hungry, thirsty, and in need of shelter. Many of the people were wearing clothing that was torn or very worn. Looking down at their feet, his heart ached. Most of the people did not have moccasins, and their feet were bleeding. The blood and the dirt mixed and dry to crust to create makeshift shoes for the people. The most difficult emotion for Hashkeh to endure was his sympathy for these people. Not one person complained, no matter the severity of their condition. These people will become my people too. He silently vowed as he led them closer to the fort. As arrived at the fort with the people, not one person lost their life. Upon seeing the people approaching the fort, the soldiers on horseback rode up to them and began shoving the newcomers forward with their guns. When the people stumbled into the parade grounds, Hashkechil saw his youngest son standing with Nabe men, who had made a circle with an opening toward the east through which Hashkechil and the group quietly moved past. One of the women they traveled with fainted upon her arrival. When she was laid on the ground, it was obvious she was six or seven months pregnant. Prayers were voiced to the creator for the group before the soldiers interrupted the union with the intrusive shots they fired into the air to get the crowd of Navajo men to disperse. The soldiers recognized Ashkehil Naba and questioned him through interpreters about where he was and how he came across the small group of Navajos. He told the soldiers he wanted to gather herbs before they were to leave for the new land. The soldiers seemed to accept his explanation and let him leave while they attended to the new group of cold, tired, and hungry Nabeho people. Once again, the soldiers fired shots into the air to get the people to settle down. Everyone was curious about the newcomers, Where are they from? What is it like on our land? Who are their relatives? were the questions most often asked. Hashkeh took the opportunity to leave the group to find his family. His little adopted children yelled with happiness, when they spotted him. Running up to him, they circled him and walked back to his camp with him. He was glad to see the little ones, but his eyes yearned to see his Ninanaba. His youngest son met him first. Sekiznazbat stood anxiously waiting behind her brother-in-law, wanting word of her young husband, 'ah Nahatahpinapah. Nenana heart beat wildly as she heard the voices of the children and heard her son speaking with his father. She was afraid to look. Where was her daughter? Where was her son? At the sound of her husband's voice, she became very weak. Since Hashkehillabah left, she had not had much rest. She worried about him. She worried about her little ones, and she worried about what her husband would do once he spotted his children. She looked into the eyes of her husband. There was no sign of her children in his face. All he said was, Tadota, did not. Nananaba wobbled where she sat, then sank to one side. Her son rushed up to her softly, saying, Shama ha'inne, my mother, have hope. Chenzi chema, wake up, my mother. Nenana regained consciousness and breathed a long sigh of relief, then smiled, sensing the presence of her husband. In her hand, she was holding a string of sinew and a bone needle, and on her lap lay a child's leather shirt. She did not want to turn to look at Hashkeh Yithnapa because there were other people around, so she slowly returned to sewing the little child's leather shirt. Ninanaba heard movement close behind her, then felt her husband's soft breath on her hair, for now his closeness had to be enough. Ashkehisnaba saw a small hole in her rug dress through which he gently poked his finger and touched her soft skin. His touch sent slight chills of relief and wanting through Ninanaba. She still did not want to look at him because other women were watching them. Ninanaba asked Ashkehisnaba if he wanted some jerky. And asked if he wanted the jerky warmed up or cold. He told her, It's up to you. Just so that your hands have touched it is all that matters, he said with a wide smile as the women started laughing. Ninanabot blushed and began unwrapping some jerky held it over the open fire for a few minutes, then placed it upon a piece of blue cornbread and handed it to him. Adla'iyan, now I have really eaten, he said, as he sensuously grunted when he took the first bite. Like a soft breeze, Ninanaba once again felt the chills of relief and wanting rush over her. Hashkeh looked up toward the eastern sky and voiced a silent prayer thanking the creator for taking care of his wife, his son, and his family. His attention returned to feasting his eyes upon his wife and their little adopted baby girl whom she held in her lap as she played with the baby's hair. Two days after Hashkeh Yisnapa and the group of Nabeho arrived at the fort, the people were told to remain in groups. They were to walk to a land where they would find plenty of water, pasture land for their flocks of sheep and goats, land to grow crops, and a place where it was much warmer. Ninanapa was confused Where do they see our sheep and goats? They have killed all of our sheep and goats, or they have stolen them from us. She had nearly a hundred sheep and goats left, but only because her husband was recognized as a leader. Sheep and goats belonging to other Nabehu women had been confiscated by the soldiers. Another large group of Nabehu arrived at the fort. They were given rations, observed for several days by the soldiers, and divided into groups. The Hu people began to sense a different kind of excitement among the soldiers, Within a week's time, the Nabehuo people witnessed the arrival of many more soldiers. The new soldiers were divided into two groups. One group of soldiers would stay at the fort, and the other group would force the Nabeho people to walk to Fort Sumner in the eastern part of New Mexico Territory. The soldiers busied themselves with repairing wagons Shoeing their horses, making leather straps to resemble whips, and loading the wagons. The Nabehua people were gathered together according to their assigned groups and were told to take only what they could carry. No one wanted to leave their meager precious possessions, so each person carried more than they could manage. The Na'behu leaders told their people to take only what they could carry and that everyone had to help carry their belongings. The elders who were weak were told they would be allowed to ride in a wagon as long as there was room, but many elderly Na'behu people did not find a space for themselves. The soldiers told the Na'behu leaders through interpreters that they were to leave at dawn the next morning. Hashkeh told the soldiers the young men needed to obtain firewood to take for cooking and to keep warm. The soldiers agreed to allow the young men to go, but soldiers would accompany the young men in their search for firewood. Hashkeh told the young men to quickly run into the hills to obtain firewood, berries, and as many herbs as they could find. The young men were accompanied by a group of soldiers. The young Nabe Hohna Bahi warriors had been told not to outrun the soldiers because that may cause the soldiers to shoot at them. The leaders watched as the soldiers stumbled on the rocks in the arroyos, while the young Nabeho men swiftly disappeared into the nearby hills. Hashkeh butchered five sheep and six goats. The soldiers watched with scowls on their faces. They let the interpreters know they did not like the meat of the one goat that made them very sick. They warned the Navajo leader not to share the meat with them. When Hushkehil Napa was told of the soldier's wishes, he smiled with satisfaction. Tapu a duchit, Chizani is a duchis. De yet shittinnepanash ah, yant ado at the Hastin de yant hidden yant and beke sago danesna. They did it themselves. They killed my wife's prized goat. I am butchering for my people. Our food never killed any of them. It was their food that killed many of our people. We are the ones with kindness. They exist without kindness. Tashkeh told all the families who were under his leadership to come and take meat. Make jerky with the meat. We will sustain ourselves with it as we travel. The women began making jerky with the meat they cut off of the sheep and goats' bones. Rock salt was ground into a thin powder and given to each family. The salt was then sprinkled on the thin strips of meat before they were hung out to dry. Tree branches were used to hang the thin strips of meat to dry. A large fire was built and fresh meat was cooked over the open fire. The Nabehu people ate. Hashkeh Yisnabat looked upon the people under his leadership and he was satisfied to see them eating. He turned from the sight of the people eating and wandered a ways off. Ninanabat followed him. She rested her hand on his shoulder. Feeling her warmth, he said, Sha'achin <inaudible> Yisnabat I wonder what my children, who have been kidnapped, are eating. I wonder if they are hungry. He heard Nananabak whisper, We will see them again. Be strong. Usually it was Hashkeh Naba who was the one speaking those words but this time he needed to hear the words. Coming from his Ninanabat's lips, the words were more believable and strong. Ashkeh felt comforted by his wife. She was the only one who knew how deeply he hurt. His Ninanabat was brave. Ashkeh vowed to be brave for her and to be strong just like her. Silent tears rolled down Ashkeynabah's strong face. He held his Ninanaba very tight. As his hot tears fell into Ninanabat's hair, he missed the faint fragrance of yucca soap that would have drifted into his nostrils. Water was scarce at the fort, and Ninanabat had not washed her hair in the past few days. Besides, she wanted to use her supply of yucca soap sparingly. Hashkeh vowed he would look for yucca roots for his beautiful Ninanapa. He also wanted to make sure he and his wife had a supply of yucca roots for the time when they would be reunited with their daughters. He knew his daughters would want to wash their hair with the sweet-smelling soap. The soap would wash the enemy's scent off of their daughters' bodies and renew their minds when they were washed with the soap. (laughs) Hashkeh Yisna held his beautiful Nenana Ba. I love you, my little one, he said in a hoarse voice. He felt her nuzzle against him, which was her way of letting him know she loved him too. This closeness, they felt, was his favorite memory of their married life. The Nabehua people were not prepared for the next part of their devastating journey. The women were anxious to leave the fort. Leaving the fort meant they did not have to be herded into the corral to be counted. Leaving the fort meant they did not have to be separated from their husbands, sons, fathers, and male relatives. The Nabeho men were prepared to protect their women, their children, their sisters, and grandmothers as they traveled to the fort the soldiers called Fort Sumner. Little did they know that they would have to prove their strength every single day to protect their women and children.